This conversation is brought to you by Chanel. A visionary woman whose influence on the arts continues even today, Gabrielle Chanel created her life and her legend on her own terms. Discover her story at InsideChanel.com. For Gabrielle Chanel, dance was always a natural fit, reflecting the freedom of movement she introduced to the fashion world. Dance was an opportunity, that of meeting the flamboyant producer of the Ballet Russe, Serge Jagilev, becoming his friend, costume designer and patron, of having her name associated with Cocteau, Picasso and Stravinsky. For Chanel today, dance remains the very essence of culture and elegance. To discover more, visit inside.chanel.com. So it, it was a strange, ghostly, uh, I, I hadn't understood, I've always liked um, ghost stories, but you know, there are literal hauntings and, and ways of um, entangling yourself um, with these ghosts that are inside you. I'm Jordan Kistner, author of the essay collection, Thin Places, and this is Thresholds, a weekly series of conversations with writers and artists about moments of epiphany or transformation that changed their lives and their work. A moment that they stepped across, like a threshold, into something new, and the way that experience changed everything they wrote afterward. To keep everyone safe, these interviews were recorded remotely, usually on a cell phone in somebody's home. And so you might hear some sounds and signs of life, like a car backfiring, a dog walking through the room, usually my dog walking through the room. Thank you for your patience with that. Marco Jefferson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning critic, the author of the book On Michael Jackson, and more recently of the acclaimed memoir Negroland, which told her own life story alongside the history and legacy of Black excellence. I was taught you don't tell your secrets to strangers, she writes in Negroland. Certainly not secrets that expose error, weakness, failure. My generation, like its predecessors, was taught that since our achievements received little notice or credit from white America, we were not to discuss our faults, lapses, or uncertainties in public. This tension between the writer and critic's desire to describe and unmask and the personal feeling of obligation to deflect is at the center of this conversation. For disclosure purposes, Margot was also my teacher, one of my first writing teachers, which was my good luck. She, as you'll hear, is generous with her intellect and wisdom, which shows up in her writing and shows up in this conversation about learning to write with more freedom, with more of one's own voice and selfhood directly in play, in view, and at risk. Hope you enjoy it. I want to include a brief content warning here. Part of our conversation touches on suicide and suicidal ideation. So if that's not something that you feel comfortable hearing about, be aware. Yeah, um, I had a couple of actually initial thoughts and they, they came together so they came tumbling together so quickly. I'm not sure which came first. Um, but one was um, recognizing um, that, and that would have been golly, around 2010, 11, 12, um, as I was working on Negroland, that um, I, I crossed over into being able to um, uh, tell a story that, that involved myself very intimately in ways other than, you know, the kind of aesthetic, cultural, um, and that, you know, I think it was Oscar Wilde who said, um, uh, criticism is the most civilized form of autobiography, mm-hmm. and that I was willing to let, I, you know, I love Oscar Wilde, but that I wanted to let 
all of those associations um, of civilized, you know, which had to do with you code, you know, um, the autobiography. It has to do with things that um, you might think are un- unseemly or not fully understood, you know, even if they're um, challenging or, or ugly. There's always a sense with criticism that you're presenting whatever you're presenting with some kind of of certainty and control. Um, you know, I wasn't. It has nothing to do with abandoning quote technique. You know, these things that we writers try, but that I I I wanted to let those particular um, coverings, garments, <laughs> um, go and um, try try to risk the kinds of things that I had for years said. Ah, you know, that's um, that's so ah, that's so shameful. That that there's I. You know that's so embarrassing, or that's um, it's just it's too painful. Um, or or this will talk about primal. Um, you know this will bring on disapproval from quarters that I I'm not I'm not prepared for. Yeah. So that was a that was a huge that was quite um quite a threshold to cross, and it took me um a very long time and um. One way, I think, in terms of that book, I crossed it was um, the day that I wrote, um, you know, I was taught not, you know, I was taught not to confess, not to write memoir, not, you know, not to reveal oneself in that way. And once that was on paper, or well, on paper, on virtual paper, um, and I knew that that was part of my material, um, that it it was enormously um uh, I'm tired of the word generative because we all seem to be using it now, but it, it <laughs> but it was. Um it was. The other thing um which happened afterwards was um uh when I'd started the book I was an or uh, no when I'd started the book my father had died. But in the process of writing it, my sister, and I'm one of two, and my mother died. And suddenly, in this very profound way, I was an orphan. Um, You know, I was, despite the people I love, the rest of my family, etc. But I'd been orphaned. And that was um, absolutely major. I kept thinking of those... um, uh, actually, I've written some about it. Those scenes in um, in usually tragedies, yes, obviously, when the stage is filled with the bodies of all the people, you know, the dead bodies. I mean, think of Hamlet. Right. Example, I was just going to say the, the end of Hamlet. <laughs> right, and then the main character, and you know, no, I'm not a, um, a ruthless warrior like Fortinbras. Um, you're more like Horatio. You know, the le- the leftover characters then have to you leave the stage but then you have to you have to find your way into um your another life and that really stayed with me wow what did that process look like for you well you know after i think everybody not everybody but so many of us experience um the same kind of initial um mourning i had of course, I knew my mother, who was close to ninety, was going to um, to die, and my father had been um, ninety. 
But my sister was three years older than I, and I had absolutely never expected to have to live um, a number of years um, as a solo, as an only adult child. (laughs) So, you know, finding my way through that um, was very hard. Um, it, It had to, it had something to do with these, these fundamental things. You have sisters, as I recall, don't you? I have a brother. You have a brother. I'm, I'm right. the older sister by two years. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, the, you still know something about it's strange. It's more weird with gender in some ways, but the roles that you've assumed, all the little ways of being active or more recessive or you know, wary and watchful versus the one throwing herself Martha Graham style. That was my sister (laughs) into the scenario. Um, And and so there was this strange process of recalibrating um, ways of being and habits that um, they were mine, but they were shaped. I mean, again, we were only three years apart and we were two girls. They were also shaped and reshaped and configured. You know, you, you, it's like in cooking, not that I cook much, when you fold, you know, one, one thing, one material into, uh, ingredient into another. So we've been folding um, into each other in certain ways. And, um, you know, whoa, um, I had to re- realign, rethink it, um, remix. Yeah. Can I, if it's okay, can I ask what your sister was like? She was the Martha Graham style? She was, she was, um, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Um, She was extremely um, strong-willed, kind of tempestuous. Um, She was Martha Graham, you might say, um, and and Betty Davis. These were both early models. Um, And she became a dancer, so she was my model also. And then she um, spent 20 years um, as the director of the Alvin Ailey School. So, you know, this, Mm. so I watched her also transition from, um, you know, being this very lovely ballet student who knew for every reason from race to temperament that, you know, the swan queen was not going to be her destiny in the 50s and 60s and found her way into falling in love with modern dance, you know, which really was created by women and was the the artistic center and refuge for many kinds of people of color um, when, when, you know, so it, it gave them a new life. So, you know, that's, she was in those ways, um, a kind of, whoa, I can follow this. Um, you know, Denise is going to college in the East. I can do that too. Denise is wearing um, a, an orange knit dress with pink trim. Okay. Um, (laughs) that those are not the colors that usually go together, but this is good. Um, so yeah, she, she was, and then I also got to define myself as the, um, the more subtle, the more reflective, the more contemplative, um, person. So, you know, yeah, I had to kind of take on parts of her, even though quite frankly, I was I was also scared after she died. I thought she'll be so angry that she died. <laughs> she had quite a temper. Um, you know, dare I really borrow some of her mannerisms and manners? So it, it was a strange 
ghostly. Uh, I I hadn't understood. I've always liked um, ghost stories, but you know there are literal hauntings and and ways of um, entangling yourself um, with these ghosts that are inside you as well as outside. She was wonderful fun. She was loopy. Um, <laughs> But, oh, my goodness, yeah. Um, and always a presence. And I suppose that's the thing that was so shocking. All of a sudden that her presence for you was something that was imma- immaterial or ephemeral, but Im- very exactly. present still. Very present, but immaterial, ephemeral. Several friends of hers would tell me they'd had dreams where she came back to them from the dead, you know, and said how she was feeling. <laughs> <laughs> that I that I didn't, but um, I understood that they would they would be haunted. Yes, the 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 intensity of the immaterial, and and I found an old entry in a journal. Um, that I'd really written down ages ago when I was talking with a friend about her her mother's death, and I had written the strange facticity of the dead, mm. and that's that's so much what um, Denise was and and remains. You know, we think of facts as these um, palpable, irrefutable in the here and now. Somehow, I mean, I guess in literature we tend to think of facts rather than speculations or fantasies is part of a kind of realism. Um, but maybe the facticity of the dead is that is one of those spaces that you wrote about, Jordan. Maybe that's one of those thin places <laughs> where, where the layers between what appears to be um, a naturalistic um, life and um, another um, space spiritual, temperamental um, zone. Um, it's not just speculative. It's, it's factual. It exists there. It's, it's peopled by every single little detail um, that we associate with, with the realistic or the naturalistic, mm-hmm. but all in this unseen zone mm-hmm. or, or, or aura that permeate, permeates you know, and it can get more dim, it can get more intense. Does that feel like one of your thin places kind it of? Do- it absolutely does. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I wonder what it was like to be entered into that kind of relationship with this alternate facticity, because sometimes that can be a, a really abrupt change from the yes. way you've otherwise processed the world or experienced the world. I, yeah, um, I think, I think the most unsettling was, uh, had to do with what I was saying earlier about, you know, sort of seeing the proportions, you know, if, if oneself, the way you, you know, sort of behave and act and react in the world, like, you know, let's say it's a kind of painting, then suddenly all the proportions of that had to be realigned and I had to do it over again in different, in different colors, you know, because again, I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't responding to her palette. I had to create my own. That was the most um, unsettling. This sense of being more connected um, to, to people who, to the supposed dead, but without pretending that they were, you know, going to be 
literally in any way reborn. It didn't, it did not have to do with, oh, you know, like I'll see them you know, mm-hmm. in the, mm-hmm. in the afterlife. It wasn't that, that it was um, memory becoming, memories really um, becoming so palpable and, and almost, and almost physical. Um, as if memory had become an each memory you had had the palpability of an of, of an allegorical figure, the figure in an allegory, where, where you believe the figure at the same time as you believe, you know what it what it stands for, what it symbolizes. The figure and the symbol are are merged. Mm. And how do you feel like that interacted with this phenomenon that you were experiencing as a writer of realizing that you needed to or wanted to, or were ready to draw yourself more forward in the writing? Well, I think in that way, it was, particularly with my mother, I would say, more than with my sister. Um, uh, It was was a form of um, being set set loose, being set free, of of being able to... um, immigrate to, um, you know, a, a new space where you test out different parts of yourself. Um, and things that you, your relationship to what you want to write about and think about changes because you're no longer, you know, instinctively, subconsciously, consciously, um, gauging its effect on um, not only my mother, but also my dead father, um, and that whole world, um, you know, of black life and history and achievement and um, a certain will towards perfection that they represented. Um, one of the difficulties I'm having with this book is that, as intimate as Negro Land um, was in many ways. It, it nevertheless um, yeah, was very much about my my relations to my <laughs> disparities with my in you know passion for my my struggles with this world um, that isn't true in the same way anymore. I mean, I'm still involved in some ways, obsessed, but I feel with this book, having written Negro Land, that um, I'm more on my own in a in a the so, I'm more the solitary traveler in what I choose to say and not say and how I choose to say it um and that's that's a huge that's more responsibility and it's 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 very terrifying sometimes because I can't I can't put it on (laughs) oh i'm doing this partly because because there's always some protection even if you're using i if the we of that larger world that context is implied there's always some kind of protection in that for you Mm -hmm. though in negro land you also wrote a little bit about the burden of the implied we behind your eye I did indeed, um, and I'm glad I did. Um, <laughs> um, and I'll, I'll also say, you know, my my mother was very proud of me as a writer, and she was actually quite a good writer herself. Um, but she wanted Negroland to come out, but she would periodically say things to me like, 
you know, Margot, she'd tell me some interesting story uh, that she knew I would want to use. And then she'd say contemplatively, you know, I'm a very private person. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you decide, well, will I respond directly or will I go "Mm," (laughs) and go about my own business, which was which was what I did. Um, You know, I was sorry that she was gone because I think her pride and pleasure and curiosity would definitely have um, dominated. But, you know, there are things there that she, that would have hurt and even angered her. Um, So it's, it's, yeah, I was just saying this is much scarier, but it is, it's, it's a relief. It is a kind of being grown up um, that that's new for me. I think solitary traveler is really the phrase I want. Yeah. That, I, do you think that that is something that a writer can experience bef- without the like evacuation of, of those relational ties, even just the act of, of pure honesty, um, is a frightening thing to do as a person who has relationships with other people in the world. Absolutely. I could not agree more. Absolutely. And I'm, I, I guess I continue to wonder whether there's a way to negotiate that or push toward freedom in that while, while remaining a good, a good person, while remaining somebody who cares about writing things that might hurt other people. Um, I do think, I think negotiation um, and pushing towards or edging towards or I think that is genuinely um, possible, desirable. Um, it's, it, it's nurturing um, because nothing is worse than hitting up against that, that knowledge if that even if you are literally writing that you are self-censoring, you know, that what is coming out is you know, um, is being edited before it can even hit the page. Um, and that's such a terrible feeling. And, and I think, you know, as a writer, we, um, as writers, um, we struggle, at least I found myself struggling with it all the time and achieving some, some breakthroughs, even while everyone, um, I most, um, loved and in that way um, feared, in that way we're talking about, even when they were still alive. I think you do. That's where also, though, these, this question of, of techniques and strategies and, and craft and voice and form um, enter. There really are, a, there, there are ways of telling stories that, um, that can ease without lying the, the pain that you justifiably feel um, someone you're close to um, will experience. And we, you know, in, in that way, writing is, it's not so different from um, skills that we learn in life. We, we you know, I know that, that uh, you know, let's say we're about to have a very painful um, conversation, one of those reckonings, whatever the subject is, with, um, with someone we love very much. We go through the different ways of of speaking, um, of even 
staying silent, um, the different word choices um, that we feel if we really want this to be, you know, um, significant exchange that we feel will make it possible for them to hear, um, not to feel destroyed, not to feel eviscerated, but still to have to take up and take in um, this material that can range from the, you know, unpleasant to the um, to the hair raising. That's what we do as writers too. And I, we're lucky to have more resources, I think, as writers um, off times or more time alone to, you know, to work with those resources. Um, we're luckier to have those more as writers than we often have in real life. For you, you described that um, on the the spot where this started to shift for you actually involved just writing down or acknowledging on the page the feeling of impediment, the saying, I yes, was not exactly. supposed to say, or I was not supposed to. Yeah, I wasn't supposed to say this. I wasn't supposed to write it. This is, these are the rules that were given me. And this is also, and as, as in the way in which I describe them, I hope you will understand that they felt absolutely imperative. You know, and and compelling. There's so many memoirs around, you know, and I've taught some of them and I've read some of them. And, you know, it seemed to me the shadow of the form can really hang over you. And that the shadow, you know, a distortion, um, almost a cartoon, but, you know, there it was of that writer just, the, the love, the pleasure, the exhilaration, the, the excitement, even when it was, you know, verboten excitement of, of truth-telling, of, of letting it out. That, I felt, oh God, if I can't find a way to do that, to give the reader that, that impetus, that drive, that, that arc, that pull, why am I writing a memoir? So to be able to say, um, you know, I'm writing against myself in some way. Um, a memoir is is almost forbidden. And, you know, even when I embrace it, um, I want to question it and its modes and its models. And I want this to be, um, uh, you know, a memoir that is cultural as much as it is personal. And I want that self. Um, it also allowed me to recognize that there are very, you know, that, that, that there are various personae, various selves, um, expressed partly by pronouns and tenses, but also just by, you know, again, is this a soliloquy you're writing? Is it a, is it dialogue? I mean, you can use all those all those means. Um, so that, yeah, being able to say that meant I was opening up possibilities for a form formal possibilities, and that meant emotional and intellectual possibilities, that if I hadn't put it on the page, would not, I would not have had access to. Was there a, an anecdote or a passage or a chapter in Negroland that felt particularly challenging to to you in this way when it with regards to the technique of self-disclosure balanced yeah. against the duties to the people you love hmm. okay um you know of course 
that the, that long section that started with a kind of collective, uh, the collective self-destruction. You know, there were a lot of the deaths in Negroland. People were killing themselves off. And then, you know, I could kind of be a slightly almost lurid reporter, but, you know, a kind of tough chronicler. Um, and then that um, had to move to my own, um, uh, those period, those years that I was rather enthralled by or enthralled to, um, um, suicide. And um, the ways in which I, I never fully, I don't think, quite sorted out all of the registers of what was very personal and what I could kind of ascribe to what we might call conditioning. But um, to, to do that, to try to map, map it out, um, was very hard. Uh, partly, again, because um, the particular social and cultural creature I was, um, in, in general, was not um, expected to um, indulge, if you will, and that would have been the verb used, um, in suicidal longings. Um, partly, oddly enough, because I'd never actually really tried it. So a part of me was thinking, you know, I'd go through these rehearsals. Well, is this a little, is this a little bogus? You know, is it? So there were a a lot of um, tonal challenges it's interesting um, how a concern about authenticity reaches even there. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, that's true. Well, you know, um, I don't want to use the word melodrama because I like, actually, I often like melodrama. But um, the hmm, the tropes of, um, fascin- of, of um, an attractive woman enmeshed in certain self-destructive behaviors, but more to the point, um, suicidal death, uh, doom um, eager, doom hungry for your fate or doom eager for, for the fate, and that fate is death. Um, you know, that, um, that has a lot of, um, you know, old, old, old stuff, old foliage, <laughs> and old decoration, <laughs> and old, again, yeah, old, old tropes clinging to it. Um, so, and also it wasn't something, um, that had been written about by, um, very many black women of my generation. I had two predecessors, Adrian Kennedy and, and Sasaki Shange. Um, so I felt I wanted to live up to them, but also that, you know, this was, this was, my embarking, you know, my, my, my contribution to a small um, body of work um, about a, a death that is longed for, but almost feels um, socially and culturally um, structured, almost feels, you know, like a form of um, either pr- um, violation of etiquette or in some weird, sick way, the etiquette of what your destiny should be. So um, that was all. That was all. That was all very tricky. But you, you're right. Authent, you know, authenticity. Don't you find? God knows, it's it's another one of those words we we fling around. But it's always there. That fear, or at least its opposite, the fear of the bogus, the 
the fear of um, the, of grandiosity, of self-aggrandizement is what I should say. Um, for me also, the, the fear or wanting to be very cautious about the balance between the weight you gave, um, the social, the political, the cultural, um, and psychology as it operates in those realms, and those very particular um, temperamental, personal um, decisions, drives that are not utterly separate, but they, they must be addressed in different with different languages mm -hmm. in the collective. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It sounds like one of the things you're talking about is figuring out how as a human being, but then also as a writer to situate what feels like your personal and private experience within these much larger social, cultural, yes. political yes. narratives that you are enacting and participating it, it, exactly. in. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and in, you know, enacting and participating um, in, in very acute and intense ways. Um, you know, what's that book? Was it Irving Goffman, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life? Mm -hmm. you know, these, are, these are acute um, roles. It's not that they are false. You know, we, we used to have this has changed, you know, now, um, the mind is much subtler than it used to be. But, um, you know, when I was, when I was a little girl and first entering my intellectual life, the, the divisions often as, you know, even intellectualized between the public and the private self and the sanctity, um, really kind of coming down, I guess, in, in a certain way from romanticism, the sanctity of what you could call your private, you know, um, un, un, untainted, experience those those realms were often very um very dramatically divided it's much more complicated than that even when the private is filled with you know with rebellion and 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 declarations of of um intimate solitary independence they still um are so you know you, you, we, we can't lie about the ways in which these multiple selves are, are playing with each other and fooling each other and collaborating with each other. How are you carrying this line of thinking and this set of technical problems or, or knots into this next project, which is also a memoir and also a memoir that seems to be about Encou encounters, encounters. With, with the world, encounters with the yeah, outside. Yeah, and with small, but it, I think one thing that's happening is there are more encounters with very particular um, objects, people, experiences. They're, they're more parsed. Um, it's almost as if, um, I don't want to use the, um, the, uh, in a funny way, it's as if um, you know it's it's partly a, a cure, you know, um, a, an intimate, active curating of um, what one might call one's personal culture, as it is also affected by the by the larger. But um, one thing, I guess, the title says a lot. I'm I'm calling it constructing a nervous system. Ooh, that's a yeah. great title. And <laughs> I got it from a friend, um, actually Wendy Walters, who said to me one, one night when I was talking to her about 
what I wanted to do. And she said, it's God, it's so hard. And I said, tell me why it's so hard. I think it is. She said, it's like you're constructing a nervous system. And I said, thank you. That's, that's it. <laughs> and, you know, the nervous system is literally trying to re, re, realign and remake yourself. Um, the book does start almost, it starts close to all these deaths, um, you know, um, of and in my family. Uh, so there, there are concrete reasons for um, um, for constructing a new nervous system, but it it also does have to do with my wanting to examine more this this these these impersonations uh, 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 that are you know as you called them enactments, but they can really take the form of of um, of impersonations of various character versions of yourself. Um, shifting, you know, according to um, the large demands, race, gender, sexuality, but the particulars, um, um, the very particular things of those demands, and just your taste, your drives, your needs, the things that, that give you pleasure, they quicken your nervous system. Do you feel like you necessarily have to be in solitude to undertake a project like that? You earlier you were describing yourself as the as the solitary traveler right now. Well I felt that more actually, much more after. Um, <laughs> after I was orphaned. I think I didn't want to keep thinking of myself as, oh, you know, she's the orphan. So I began to think of myself as the solitary traveler, which also <laughs> meant if you're traveling, you know, if you're an orphan, you are perpetually in that state, right? Of having been left, um, of being the lost in some way implicitly child. So, you know, to be the traveler, um, with companions on occasion or solitary, you know, is, is, you know, to, to take on, um, a kind of experiential, um, you know, pride and, and desire and will. So that's really, um, uh, but wait, you were asking me something else. I got lost in, um, Trying to de- trying to define what I meant by being a solitary. No, writing in solitude. You know, I think that I had to spend, um, and even if I'd gone into some other profession, would have had to spend a lot of time alone with myself because it was a, a way of almost cleansing my system, uh, a cleansing a system that had been over. Um, responsive to um, expectations, demands, um, you know, um, even, you know, even little insinuations. And that was my temperamental um, responsibility. Um, I, a part of me gets sick to death of writers, um, of writers' solitude. Um, you know, I've got a, a streak, you know, there was for a while um, when I was much younger, um, I wanted um, to be an actor or an actress. Actress is still a word I, I actually like. Um, and, you know, that has everything to do with um, creating, inventing, rehearsing, improvising, you know, in, you know, in groups, or at least in dialogue. Um, you know, I wish that I had done much more choral. I wish I'd, I joined a choir and done a lot of choral performance. Um, that too, um, is very is very exhilarating to me, um, but I think there is a certain kind, and and you know every artist, um, even if you're a performing artist in you know in some kind of collective relationship, 
there is there there is that part there is that part of the work where it's just you and 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 it and all and all of the um all of the things that surround you know all of the desires the needs all of the prohibitions you know you've got to do that alone um it's your mind and it's and your heart um and your soul and they are translating into um this thing we call writing this poetry prose whatever you know in a certain amount of just um quiet um of just being there with whatever versions or portions of yourself um are going to come forward mm. Yeah, I, I. Um, what do you think? Well, you know, it's funny. I, I hadn't, I hadn't intended to ask about like whether you think writing in general requires solitude because I don't think I think that's what you've just said is absolutely true. Which is that I think that probably anyone who makes something, um, whether that's writing or music or dance, has to eventually be making from a point of silence and encounter with the world or yourself or, you know, that there's a certain kind of exactly. privacy or solitude that might be required for that. But I don't actually think yes. that most writers are afforded the luxury of, of solitude in, in the way that we imagine that our, you know, artists have solitude, you know, yeah. experience this sort of that, extremely... That is the, that's another one of those legacies from romanticism. Sure, ex I was going to say yeah, it's a very absolutely. romantic idea of what solitude yeah, absolutely. means. And I don't, I don't really ascribe, ascribe to that either. I, I was asking, I think, more particularly, and this you did answer, um, whether you felt like this particular project of going back and re you know, constructing a nervous system and trying to account for and excavate and, and re recreate the, what did you call, what did, how did you say it? Like the, the creation of personal, was it style? Well, it's partly a personal culture. Culture, personal the, culture. The elements and, of, your, of a personal culture. Yes. Yeah. I love that phrase. And I, I think I was asking whether or not solitude felt necessary to you for that project. Um, you know, it, uh, yes, a lot, not again, Margo said a little defensively, I mean, I don't have perfect solitude, I teach, I do, <laughs> you know that, Jordan, oh, that Jordan. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying but, you're just locked in your room somewhere for years but at a time. I think, yes, because the, it, it's, it's much more free form than anything I've done before. Um, you know, I will go back to dear old Oscar Wilde, and he did say, what is first in feeling comes last in form. Mm. Um, and I like that, but also what's first in feelings that you are still sussing out and trying to name. And sometimes they're feelings and sometimes they're thoughts and sometimes they're, you know, ideas you're grappling with. And sometimes it's the, it's, 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 it's conflicts and, and, and vehemence um, and intensity. And I will say violence because this is violent day of us in the culture around you. Um, you know, all of that, um, it, 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 it demands so much formally. Um, and you know, I, I don't have the same shelters. I don't have the same shelter of here's my critical persona and even the shelter of, I am a performer. I am your 
I called myself all sorts of things, you know, the guide, the central character, the, um, the elegist, the um, whatever, whatever of Negro land. Um, I mean, of course, that world is still there, but, you know, it, it's not the stage I'm on. I, I have to kind of devise a new, it's a new, it's like, it's more like a site specific work and I have <laughs> to find a new site for each damn thing. <laughs> oh no, that's a, it's a production problem. There we, that's all it is. It's a production <laughs> problem. That's right. <laughs> uh, how does it feel? You know, um, it, I like to be further along than I am. Some, there's, a, there's a section of it that I really feel good about. And that just feels thrilling because I think, oh, I haven't, I haven't done this before. And this is where, you know, that pleasure of, oh, this is how this fits with that. And this is why I was so obsessed with saying this. And now, um, now I see. Now it, it, it makes sense. And oh, my God, and it may lead me there. That and, but then, you know, suddenly you get to the end of that section that you're absolutely pleased with, that X number of pages, and you go, oh, what next? You know, it's like um, temporary dead end. So, but but I, I made some breakthroughs or I or cracked some codes. I won't say breakthroughs, but cracked a few small codes um, um, recently. Um, so, you know, we... we Fourth, we go, we go, we go forth, we digress, we progress, <laughs> we recede, we, we proceed. <laughs> Thresholds is a production of Lit Hub Radio. We're produced by Drew Broussard and Justin Alvarez. Music and editing by Laura Faye Oshwood of Arthur Moon. Our art is by Kirsten Huber. Special thanks to Farrar Strauss and Drew. I'm Jordan Kistner. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at jordan.kistner. We'll see you next week.